0: Welcome to Level with Emily Reese. This is music from Austin Wintry for the interactive adventure film-slash-game called Erica. Austin says it's the most complex score he's composed, largely due to how quickly the music needs to react to the story choices of the player. He describes it as a chain-link fence of about 350 different cues, or like little snippets of music, that combine and connect to create full tracks in the game. And he also kind of reimagined the whole score and did a lot of rewriting at the very last
1: minute. Erica really kicked my ass, but it was um, it was really great. It was a long haul, but because of the fact that it's made... Partially like a movie, in the obvious ways it's made like a movie, even though it's still very much a game. Um, it had kind of an irregular um, unfolding. You know, it, it didn't it didn't have the normal kind of game pipeline because they had to do a lot of movie stuff and all the traditional kind of movie pipeline things of post production that games don't tend to kind of follow uh-huh. uh, gave it just kind of an, a slightly odd slightly unusual for a game. It it was not unusual in the general sense because there's plenty of movies like this, but uh, gave it an unusual kind of schedule where I would, you know, I did a lot of work and then I had kind of a couple months to sit on my hands and then would do a lot of work and then another few months to sit on my hands and... (laughs) Um so yeah it was it was a it was a little bit crazy. Did you feel like you needed to have the music done much earlier than you
0: would in a game uh or all things considered or or was it relatively the same in that regard too just time timeline toward the end of the of the project.
1: Well it it um it's interesting because so much of it came into focus at the very very end. And I think that was the movie side of it rearing its head because that's very often the case on movies you're coming in so late, but also they're finding it kind of late because it's amazing how much of a movie can be discovered in the editing bay. Oh, sure, and oh, yeah. It was kind of the same here. Like we were, we were realizing opportunities for certain ideas to come forward or to be cut out, and that sort of thing in the kind of eleventh hour, despite the fact that you know they had wrapped up production a year before the script had been in development for well over a year before that we had made a prototype you know in the year before that that was kind of like a miniature uh you know 10 minute version of it just to kind of test out the tech and make sure that all the footage would move seamlessly and all that kind of thing yeah so it's like we had this long runway in which to sort of find it and yet you know i was writing cues where I thought, oh my God, I never thought to do this, you know, fill in the blank with whatever, you know, days before the sessions. Mm. Uh, so it was, it was, it was. yeah, it was one of those that had kind of these extremely steep ups and downs. Uh pretty, it was, yeah. it's it pretty cool, but it was also very kind of uh, exhausting and terrifying. Yeah. Well, we, I mean, normally I would, you know, start each
0: interview off by just having you kind of set the stage a little bit for people who aren't familiar with the game, so uh, I kind of jumped the gun a little, and if you wouldn't mind just going back and talking about why this is a
1: unique project in the first place. Sure, of course. So, Erica is the debut game of a new British studio called Flavorworks that was started by a guy named Jack Atridge and his tech director, Pavle, and the... Goal of the company and of Erica in particular is to try to find ways to make games that sort of bridge the gap between uh, traditional games and the kind of vast sea of non-gaming public who are into movies, though. And so they're basically wanting to create interactive cinematic experiences that draw from the vocabulary of film – Namely, obviously, they're shot like a movie. They use cinema conventions and real actors and props and sets and costumes and all that kind of stuff. But um, but they're games. They are they are definitely games. They have game mechanics, and um, and in the case of Erica, you know, it's a it's at least at launch a PlayStation exclusive. So you know, it's not it's not going the bandersnatch route of kind of using Netflix in a unusual way. Um, it's not um, it's not some freestanding app in a web browser or something like that. It, it will eventually actually be on on mobile, which, ironically, despite the fact that it's coming out on PlayStation, was how it was always originally intended. Because Jack wanted he he really envisioned it as an iPad game because he really wanted you to feel like you're you're literally touching the world. You're interacting with the characters and, and the the touch interface of it was. Very much how it was conceived and um, and then the, it was sort of a compromise because Sony offered them a great deal and they said, okay, well we can we can use the the touchpad on the PS4 controller in a very similar way and yeah. you know have all the benefits that come with working with Sony. But it will eventually make its way. I don't know when maybe maybe before the year is over. I'm not sure what the the deal they made is, but it will make its way to uh, mobile eventually, and then and then I think you'll have a chance to have, if I would dare say it, something of the definitive experience of it. the basics of what it's actually about is it's a story of a girl, a kind of young, early to mid-twenties young woman named Erica who we are seeing glimpses of, or we're seeing glimpses of her sort of childhood trauma where she had found, as a little girl, the the murdered corpse of her father. And, uh, and then now, flash forward, you know, t- 12 15 years later or whatever and she gets a package in the mail that's this sort of gruesomely severed hand and hmm. uh thus begins like a kind of a police investigation and a and a thriller of you know intrigue and suspense and all that kind of thing as she gets pulled into this story that is about you know what danger she's in now but also how it relates to the unsolved murder of her father from many years earlier and the, in the, so you, and it, there's a lot of surreality to it of navigating her flashbacks and trying to piece together even what happened and what she saw because she's never totally sure all that kind of thing. So it's, um, it's got the kind of tone of the conspiratorial sort of Da Vinci code kind of films, but it's also got this gruesome and surreal quality of something almost like Jacob's ladder. Hmm. And, um, it was um, really amazing to work on something where you get to revel in the, the the tricks of the trade of film. Like, for example, I've done a lot of indie movies, and yeah. the things I always love connecting with the director about are uh, particularly actors. part of why Troy Baker and I are, are such good friends, I think, because... Uh, he's such a phenomenal actor, and I love studying and scrutinizing the craft of acting, of of becoming convincingly another person. I think that's a really unique and interesting art, and mm-hmm. and um, and so this was one, you know, that's so built around this one character of Erica, and the actress Holly Earl uh, was cast very, very last second. There's actually a whole story there uh, hmm. of uh, playing to to play her, and she did such an amazing job because. It's a it's a tough – it's a really tough acting proposition because basically, you know, Erica is not you, the player. That It's not one of those games where you're, I think, supposed to feel like, oh, I just did this. I just went over and opened the window to see what the noise was outside or whatever. Um, it's definitely – Erica did those things, but she did them at my suggestion. Uh, so you're kind of like this – you're kind of like this other – Mental, you're like this other consciousness c- cohabitating her brain where she's she's the main author of her thoughts and actions, but you have some influence in there. So you'll choose dialogue options throughout the whole thing, just like an RPG almost like a bioware game. you know, there's these dialogue trees constantly mm. um they're executed very differently from that because you know you don't get to cycle through a bunch of options it's it's meant to be very conversational. so after you after you pick whatever you pick, it the conversation moves forward like any normal one would, as opposed mm. to like working through the list of things to say before moving forward and saying, yeah, "Okay, yeah. time for me to leave." It's it's much more <laughs> realistic than that because you know you're looking at actors perform the scene. It would be very distracting if you were obviously aware of kind of reshuffling the deck, which I think is one yeah. of the things among many that FMV games have gotten wrong in the past. But in any case, Holly did an amazing job because she has to be blank canvas enough. That you can kind of project your own thoughts onto her, but while being this pretty definitive version of that character. And bearing in mind also that, you know, every given scene has to be shot half a dozen different ways based on what the character, what the uh, player chooses. And as an actor to try to stay as Erica, but capture the nuance of what the player has tilted you towards. I think it's, she's been getting a lot of attention um, in the press and mm. rightfully so but i think even then even be, even despite that i think there's probably a a, a lot of um there's probably a, a, an underappreciation for just how tall in order her job was um and she she crushed it and and there's mm. a, other there's other actors in it who, who who did an amazing job as well in the cinematography and all that and production sure, sure. production design in general is is really beautiful and so yeah, that's kind of a, a smattering of random <laughs> trivia slash the premise and all that sort of thing. <laughs>
0: choices happen that quickly, Austin, how how just how did that translate for you musically compared to you know, because uh, you, you uh, your music is interactive as a video game composer, so that aspect isn't new but it seems like maybe the speed at which it needed to be interactive was perhaps
1: new. I'm not sure, but talk to me about that. It definitely is probably the most complex score I've ever done. Uh, mm. It does circles around even things like Journey and Abzu, which are highly, highly interactive mm-hmm. um, because of the fact that... You, you correctly nailed it. It's the fact that there is um, this steady stream of choices to make, and they all affect the characters, the storyline, and the sort of mood and atmosphere and all of that, and, and the music has to reflect that. So, And, and nev- never mind the fact that as a rule... Jack, the director, said he never wants the player to go more than about 15 seconds before they have some kind of interaction with it. Because he doesn't ever want it to lapse into being this kind of token interactive movie where you're sort of poking it and then you sit back for 20 minutes and then you have to poke it again. You are constantly engaged with it in the same way that you're constantly engaged with any game. You know, most games, you never stop. You know, if it's like a shooter, obviously... You're mm-hmm. you're the one driving, so you're you're moving the character around. You're pulling the trigger. You're opening the doors. You're in you know ha- yeah. navigating the dialogue, all that all the time. Uh, so you never actually stop engaging, and so it's very noticeable if a game has like a particularly long cutscene because you realize, oh, I haven't actually done anything in about two minutes. Right. And this this one because of the fact that it feels, your your brain can't help but tell you, I'm watching a movie right now. It doesn't feel like you're playing a game to just to just glance at it because we're not used to games that are shot like movies. And so he really wanted to make sure that we never kind of lapse into this um, acquiescence, you know, that we never get complacent and just sort of kick back. And likewise, the score has to just be on its toes at all times. There's so rarely a cue that's more than, you know, a few seconds, basically. There's something like 350 cues in the final finished score. Wow. And, and they're And they're not standalone pieces of music they all it's like a chain link fence where there's everything is connected to everything else yep and so labeling them even as cues sounds like you know there's 350 tracks in the score and that's not remotely the case because mm-hmm. it's it's like looking at a, yeah chain link things are or, or like a, a brick wall where everything is sort of touching everything else and um Because you don't really, there's very few moments where you actually perceive the music stopping. It's not, you know, heavily wall to wall, but uh, it does have a pretty continuous presence through the whole game, which runs, you know, about feature film length, so you can play through it in about two hours, although there's so much branching that like yeah. i just saw a tweet this morning from someone that said i just finished my 8th playthrough and i still keep finding huge amounts of new things <laughs> um which is crazy cuz the game's only been out a week and so yeah. it's just it's funny to think of playing through something 8 times in a week it's yeah. been a while since i saw a, a review like that but but that it was designed for that i mean that's kind yeah. of the idea um and so anyway yes the the it's all very tangential but your question of uh <laughs> The sort of how the score has to account for all that. It, it was it was nightmarishly challenging. And a lot of love and credit goes to my partner in crime at, at Sony, Adam Lidbetter, who had to be the kind of the final arbiter. Of, he was the sort of where the buck stopped in terms of implementing all of this in WISE and making sure that it okay. was functional. Because um, I wasn't set up to be able to do that remotely because they're all in London. Um, so I would basically create these incredibly detailed maps for him, and then he would implement it, and then I could play test the game from my build here, and um, give him feedback, and and uh, kick it back and forth and back and forth like that. Um, or sometimes he would just send me a quick video capture and I would be able to go through it and say, oh, you know, this cue really like when Erica turns her head, that's really where the, the third layer should be um, activated and unmuting. Because when she walks in the door, I need to already be in bar three of the cello solo, blah, 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 that kind of thing. Uh, I mean, it's just it's just a, it was like a nightmare. But it, <laughs> but it was but it was amazing. I mean, it really it really stretched my brain in ways that I don't think I'd ever experienced. I, I it almost killed me. But definitely fulfilled the whole what doesn't kill you makes you stronger because I I, I survived and now it's like okay let's just push the bar further next time
0: mentioned cello solo so we better talk about Tina Guo who played uh, for you uh, yet again a beautifully uh, well done performance on her part but let's talk you know nitty-gritty stuff about some of this music because it's beautiful and it does feature cello it features violin there's awesome yeah. like yeah. tenor sax there's contrabass mm-hmm. clarinet which who doesn't want more of that all day please yeah, yes that's true what a, what a great color and so many more wonderful soloists, um, but but let's go ahead and start with Tina because it seems like she, you know, for lack of a better term, was more or less the focus over the score.
1: Yeah, in a way, it, it's funny because my early drafts of the score had barely any strings at all. Oh,
0: I was pitching some
1: very wild and weird ensembles. <clears throat> I remember, my very first pitch was. You know, what if it's if it's all you know flutes and saxes or something? You like, know, I was pitching all kinds of uh, truly bizarre lineups, and um, I, it was one that was one iteration of it that was basically all violas, but not really conceived of like an orchestra. It was like a series of viola chamber ensembles, and, and just went through a lot of different drafts, and through a very slow and incremental process, it kind of wound its way to being like. I call it sort of dark journey in a in a certain sense because <laughs> it's it's actually got a bit of an overlap of the palette of journey, but it's just a vastly uh, more menacing result. Yeah. The uh, star, as you say, is is once again Tina. It's like our 2000th score together, I think <laughs> and um, uh, or score project in general, I should say, because it, it, we've been all over the place, but but yeah, I can never resist. Yeah. writing for her and cello really resonated with with Jack because it can be very soulful and very delicate and then uh, very sort of unnerving and then very outright terrifying very easily. It can walk those lines. And a lo- unlike a lot of other instruments, yeah. it doesn't have a kind of built-in association. Like, for example, the tenor sax was a challenge because – Jack never wanted it to feel like a noir-type experience. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're in any kind of tense thriller mode and you hear a sax, they don't even have to be playing. They can be playing completely straight classical-style sax. Yeah. No jazz suggestion at all. And your, your ear just says, you know, look, a hundred years of uh, <laughs> noir films and TV <laughs> and games – It's just we're in noir territory. So it's like, but I was hell-bent on using it because I I love that color. So the the idea was to be very, very gentle with it. Yeah. Uh, But sax, I mean, cello doesn't have that problem. There is no no built-in, you know, oh, cello has to overcome the fact that it's always associated with X or Y, you know? Right, yeah. Um, Most orchestral instruments fit into that category. Although, interestingly, at one point I was leaning heavily on bass flute and Jack was saying... In certain contexts, it really sounds like a big, almost like a Native American wooden flute. Um, oh. And he said, and he said it, it, it tilted it as if the game was trying to borrow from Tomb Raider or something uh, as a result. Interesting. Okay. And he, he said, yeah. you know, I, I I really, he said, I totally get that it's not that, but I don't want any players to have that misconception. So yeah. let's just not even take the chance, which I think is a completely valid note. You know, some. Yep. Some instruments are just kind of codified socially or culturally certain ways. They're typecast, and yeah, and, and with good reason. You know, it's really hard to it's really hard to hear a sitar and think of anything yeah. you know non-Indian because uh, yeah. it's just it's just baked into the cultural experience. And yeah. you know, given enough time, if we had hundreds of years of like sitar EDM tracks, uh, then I think eventually we would detach that association. But for Today, at least particularly to a a Westerner's ears, some things are just uh, kind of uh, they they, they have shadows cast that you have to contend with. And so uh, as a result, cello and violin became kind of the primary sound. And and it's a very strings rich score in general. But so but but to the to your to your actual question, Tina, for sure. I mean, I can't who who can resist. (laughs) She she's, she's 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 such a beast. And yep. this score, much like Journey, in a way, this score wasn't one of those technical showcase kind of ones. Like what, like what I did for her on Assassin's Creed, was like, okay, let's show the world what you can really do. Uh, you know, that was just technical fireworks in so many places. But this was much more about let's be soulful, let's let's be how 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 emotional can we make a whole note here? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it doesn't need to be some big, florid, elaborate melody it's like it's just adding to the texture And similarly, so in, in, so in terms of the characters, you know, the idea is that the cello is kind of symbolic of Erica, but specifically Erica today, Erica in the present tense, because okay. so much of the game deals with Erica in these flashbacks and dealing True. with her childhood self. That I wanted to have a separate color that I only used when we were trying to hint at the um, the Erica of before, and that's what. The violin's role is so the two of them are often in a kind of dialogue as present Erica wrestles with past Erica, um, and I tried to I tried to make them sort of strictly associated and uh, with those so that the the subtext can come through in a scene like if I'm scoring a scene that isn't a flashback but there's violin in there the idea was to try to evoke her past through the through the edges you know through the cracks. Sure uh, like like the light under a door kind of an idea The rest are much more incidental, like contrabass clarinet. My my dear friend um, Andrew Leonard, who I've worked with a lot, is a phenomenal clarinetist. He played all the contra, and that's that's you know that's just thriller territory. That's just I needed something that's low and growly, and something that can be very full but also very harsh uh, when it's needed to be. It's kind of a compliment to the fact that I recorded two different string orchestras one of a traditional string orchestra in in, uh, Macedonia, and then the other was all basses in Nashville. And very often the contra bass clarinet and the double bass ensemble are heard together kind of as a weird, Uh, dark choir. How many basses were in this double bass choir? It wasn't huge. It wasn't a particularly oversized group. I think eight, if I remember correctly. You know, it was like a large orchestra's worth of basses, basically. But the difference was it was written as as, you know, that many parts. Sure. It wasn't it was so there would be often these very low, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight voice chords, uh, where each player in the group is is on their own. So you end up with this really thick and rich. And there's a lot of moments where I also have them playing these really high harmonics, which as a bass is really hard to do in tune, which was kind of the idea. So you get these weird ghostly chords that are shaky in their intonation, and it's all just the bass ensemble. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, that was was one of those very fun days in the studio because the basses aren't used to being... The stars, you know, the sole focus (laughs) of attention. They're used to just being told, you know, that was fine, do it like that again. a lot of fun. There's a video I put on YouTube where you can see some little glimpses of it, um, and um, and they were they were absolutely fantastic. And we and it's funny because they also have a pretty wide range of of material to cover. It, you know, it's, it's it's a sometimes it's very droney, sometimes it's these big corral things like I was talking about. There's also quite a bit of very kind of slashing, low polyrhythmic things where you know they're kind of doing they're like the percussion section, because it's not a very percussive score, but every now and again I need I need some some pulse. And I liked leaning on the basses in those instances when I could, because uh, it's just an unusual color, but they have so much body to the sound that it doesn't feel thin or small. Uh, and they also have lots of very aggressive kind of aleatoric, sort of straight-on horror, just give me the max carnage you can muster. And needless to say, basses... The kind of personality type that says, I want to play bass for a living is also the personality type that loves the carnage. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about the carnage too, man. Because
0: what, what is it like uh, writing horror? Let's, let's – uh, not that this was, you know, psychological thriller. Okay, I get it. But, you know, this, this is scary music. So talk to me about the difference in that compared to the more melodic writing that maybe – not that the melod, melodic stuff can't be scary too. But I, you know what I'm saying?
1: yeah absolutely well and and part of the part of the fun of this one was trying to kind of have all of those things like there are some moments where it's very melodic, but I tried to make it uh very unnerving or, or outright scary yeah um and I would look to you know someone like um John Corleano or even Charles Ives who I think can can do that very very well, where there can be this powerful melody that's cutting through a sort of sea of madness and that was a very useful technique because i wanted the purity of who erica is to never get lost and so if she's in a horrible situation there should be some little kind of glimmer of light amid all the uh, amid all the other sort of nastiness Mm -hmm. um and but yeah i mean i don't know what what's it like it's like um it's like writing any other kind of thing you you try to crawl inside it and say you know is this is this actually that emotion is it actually scary or or creepy you know a little bit unsettling or very unsettling is it actually sentimentally you know heartfelt is it um is it intriguing blah 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 whatever erica at various points had to be all those things and to me the the big challenge is not to just lean on this technique of oh you know, I wrote music once that was scary and I used these chords voiced this way. So now I'm going to just do that again because that's what scary music is. You know, that's to <laughs> me like the goal is to not just have this kind of preloaded bag of tricks, but to try to find some new way of expressing that. Because I, I don't I don't believe music is so constrained or art in general that, you know, there is only one way to be scary or any one way yeah. to be um exciting or action-packed or blah 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 blah. So, yeah, I the challenge was how to be scary where it was never um it was never without some little kind of grain of soulfulness in the mm-hmm. in the middle. Mm-hmm. But then also We never wanted it to be sentimental and lapse into kind of schmaltziness, which meant that even at its most sort of pure and beautiful, there needed to be some little subversion, um, some little kind of darkness creeping in along the edges. So that we're never, you know, we're never kind of fully one or the other. Uh, And it's it's a challenge, you know, not to mention the fact that Jack also as a director, you know, he always has a million notes on everything. So every cue, it's like (laughs) I, I kill myself to make it. 98% scary and 1.5% beautiful and 0.5% hopeful. (laughs) And then he has the notes where he's like, yeah, I think emotionally it works, but, but can we look at, you know, this, 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 this. And so it's like, I have to kind of retain that, which is working and not lose it while also addressing all his notes and bearing in mind how deeply interactive it all is. And bearing in mind that like a movie, they're also still revising their edits and the cut is changing. And so you know for those brief moments where I know okay, I have five seconds and then I need to, you know, have a little jump scare when the door opens. It's like, oh, well, actually, I have to integrate all those notes, but now it's 4.7 seconds. Um, and also they changed the shot, now we don't quite see what it is, so maybe it shouldn't be quite as scary and should be a little bit more um <laughs> intriguing or whatever. So it's like the thing was just this juggling act that was combining some of the most difficult aspects of film with some of the most difficult aspects of gaming again i, I have no this is not a therapy therapy with emily which <laughs> could definitely definitely be the uh be a subtitle i think of your <laughs> of your show but in this case i'm not trying to sound like i'm complaining no not at uh, all it it was very um it was very challenging but in a way that you know I'm happy with the results. I'm I'm proud of the results. Yeah. There were definitely days where I told Jack, you know, we're not friends right now. Uh, (laughs) you, you, You are dragging me through hell, but I think it'll be worth it in the end. And of course, it definitely was.
0: I'm curious and i've I, I like to bring this up because it's it's a difficult thing to do, and I imagine it must have been that much more difficult in your situation because of all the cues you were juggling. but what was it like then to make a soundtrack
1: from oh, the music yeah. you wrote no it's a it's a very it's a very um savvy you you betray your your expertise on video game music uh, <laughs> with a question like that because I think a lot of people think that it's sort of a one-to-one translation, especially if it's a, it's a well, if it's a well-done album where you play the game and you kind of internalize what you think the music was like, and then you listen to the album and it seems to confirm, yeah, that's how I remember the music being. But if yeah. it's at all an adaptive score, now, of course, bearing in mind, there's plenty of game scores out there where, you know, it's just basically a succession of cues that can be pretty easily plopped down as standalone tracks. Uh, but certainly, with at least speaking only for myself, most most every score I've done has fairly high amounts of interactivity, where the score proper is like this tool chest of audio possibilities for the game to be configuring for the player, which is very different from just hit play and then it's it'll be quiet when the cue is over. Uh, in this case, yeah, putting together the album. Was was very challenging. Um, I wouldn't say it was in general more challenging than something like Journey or Assassin's Creed, where the you know I had those same problems. I, I will say the score. There's almost 90 minutes of music in the game, and I don't like when albums are overly long. I think a lot of albums are presumptuous about the sustained interest of the listener, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want to be guilty of that. I think that. You know, if if there's 15 cues in the score that need to be like full-on horror, and you, of course you write 15 different things so that you're not just repeating yourself and the game doesn't feel like it's just cueing the horror sound effect, but it's actually sculpted around the moment and around the place within the character's arc and trajectory, uh, nonetheless, when you go to make an album you probably don't need 15 big horror moments to make your point point, right. and so it's like let's figure out a way to cut you know 10 of those that, I tend to try to be merciless I think the album's around an hour just shy of that and um, there's a good 20 plus minutes that I cut out but here was the here was this challenge that I also I never really dealt with this before the game has so much branching in it Throughout, and then uh, very much the end. The, there's, there's just the half a dozen different, very distinctly emotionally different endings. And I was, you know, I wanted to share the on the album the music from those different endings, but I thought, I don't want to inadvertently sort of canonize what the so-called correct or official ending is as if there is such a thing. Because one of the things that Jack cared very much about was that the game feel like it will give you whatever choices you want to make. And so if you do X and then the game is over, if you want to go back later and do Y and realize, oh, wow, there's like 15 minutes more gameplay that I could have experienced if I'd kept going, but I chose X instead of instead of Y, and therefore, you know, it's it's this is my ending. And so it's like... For some players, X, you know, the game ends at Z, and they go right through X and Y. So I thought, well, an album where you chose Z would have X, Y, and Z musically, but if you just stop at X, then the album probably shouldn't have Y and Z on it. And so I found myself grappling for like a month with how to make this album not betray the point of the game. I didn't want to be at odds with this notion of player agency by saying here's the official ending or god forbid here's my favorite ending um i wanted it to try to be open so i i did quite a bit of re-editing so that i could kind of include all the endings but mask them where they don't quite feel like it and i made some adjustments and i did drop material as well um it does help that there's an end credits piece that is the same no matter what I intentionally made it sort of emotionally ambiguous so that it would work no matter how the game ended for you. And that helped make, make it so that, you know, the album will end the same way the game ends for everyone. And that kind of made me sleep a little bit better at night. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, I never thought I actually pitched to Sony. I said, I have, a, I have a really insane idea. What if we develop an app for buying the album where it can take your PSN data and... And basically upload all your choices and give you an album of your playthrough. (laughs) Um, And uh, so if you go to buy the soundtrack. Now, of course, first off, there's a lot of labor involved with that, and it's kind of a gimmick. So I thought they're never going to want to put in the time to program, code, design, develop, you know, menu art Uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, for something that is like, oh, that was cool. (laughs) So it's kind of a it's kind of a failed proposition. I also (laughs) thought of it a little too late and there wasn't time even if there had been available labor. But then also I could just hear people saying, you know. Well, I I want to hear all the music though. Like I'm interested in the soundtrack as its own thing. Yeah. And it's annoying that I would have to play through the game multiple ways in order to hear all the music, and I and that's a valid complaint. So I thought, okay, you know what, screw it, we won't do that. But that's the spirit I at least want to honor, uh, and so hopefully I I did a good job. I who knows, we'll see. So far, nobody who's played it uh, multiple times, you know, came through and. Felt like the album was sort of forcing them to have a different experience or something and and that
0: that, that
1: seems to be enough for me to feel satisfied <laughs> yeah yeah
0: yeah tell me about the song that crops up from time to time Suffer.
1: The singer, uh, someone we both know rather well, Laura and Travia. She's uh, wonderful. Uh, she's yeah, she's a gift. And the funny thing was that was never intended to be final. I I was so around a year, almost a year and a half ago, they were uh, getting ready to shoot, and they had you know like a two month shoot or something like that. And there is in the script this song that her father had played on an old. Vinyl, you know, LP. When she was growing up, that's called the Aria for Delphi, and it's like a '50s sort of, um, you know, like a duop, like a Righteous Brothers, yeah, f- '50s pop ballad. And it's written in the script, you know, that they wanted this song, and so they said to me, you know, I, you know, I'd already been in, attached for so long, it was presumed that I could help with these kinds of things, and I said, you know, let's write something so that. Uh, they can you can play it back on set and it can you know it can really help kind of inform your choices, and then it turned out there's even more use for it than that because there's a scene where she is um, sitting at a piano and 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 the the girl with her at the piano is is trying to show her how to play it on the piano, so I had to first do the song as the '50s sort of pop song, and then I also had to do a piano version that is sort of doubling for what's happening on set. So the camera films the actress's hands, but it's actually me playing uh and I had to and and the you the player also have to hit the keys. Mm-hmm. And so I had to sample my piano so that we could, you know, make it where when you when you touch it it plays the keys, but then also I'm playing the kind of left hand part that's you're, that's trying to accompany you and <laughs> So it's kind of messy and and amateur, which is what it's supposed to sound like. It helps that that's how I play piano. And so, uh, uh, but for the pop song, you know, I remember part of it was I had to, I, I did a bunch of versions. I wrote multiple songs before we found the one that seemed to stick. And as a way to just communicate, because I'm a garbage singer, so I, <laughs> I I would send it to Laura and I said, "Can you just sing this as a as like a uh, scratch track?" And part of it also is that there's these lyrics that are all in Greek from the Delphic Maxims uh, because the oracle at Delphi is referenced as a kind of mythical uh, character uh, by some of the characters. Okay. And, um, and, the, and the song is called the Aria for Delphi and the, the sort of mental hospital in which the game takes place is the Delphi house. So this is a theme very much throughout... I wrote finally a song just me I played it on piano just a simple little you know kind of piano reduction Um, and Laura sang over that and then I sent it over to them and I said you know does this tune resonate with you and they liked it and before I had a chance to make the pop arrangement myself uh, Jim Fowler who uh, until recently for many years was uh, one of the staff in-house audio gurus and composers at Sony in London, uh, who had he, 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 you know I've known him for years and he he orchestrated uh, Jess Curry's score to Everybody's Gone for the Ra- Everyone's Gone to the Rapture and nice. uh, so let us melt and he's a tremendous musician he wrote the score to um, Diggs' Nightcrawler which is a phenomenal little big band score and he uh, co-scored the recent uh, PlayStation VR game Blood and Truth. In other words, he's a very good composer. He did his own version of the 50s pop song that I didn't even have a chance to do. And then when I heard it, it was like, well, I'm not going to improve on this. This is just great. (laughs) So when you hear it in the game, both on the album and in the game, when you put the record on the turntable, there's two different scenes where you can actually play the album. The version you hear is his arrangement of my song. And and Laura's scratch track, we just never replaced. I just I just we all kind of (laughs) fell in love with it and just said, you know what? Let's just keep it. and um, <laughs> And so then what happened was, because the song is so interwoven with these childhood memories of uh, the young Erica, I thought it could be interesting that, beyond, you know the fact that I'm using the violin as a way to kind of represent her childhood, I, that melody, the, the pop song melody, can become a kind of secondary theme that is all about that childhood trauma. And so there's a lot of instances where I would take Laura's vocal track and I would nest it into the rest of the music. So you have this kind of ghostly representation of that 50s pop song echoing yeah. through yeah. in the midst of all this orchestral nastiness and 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 horror kind of or or dark, suspenseful or dramatic kind of stuff. And yeah. that was a pretty late revelation. I didn't really start doing any of that until I was... Maybe six weeks from being done. It was just one of those where I realized, oh my god, I can't believe this has been sitting in front of me the whole time, and I never thought to use it this way. (sighs) And then I basically rewrote the whole score overnight because I thought, well, this is stupid. Why this should be this should be a major motif? (laughs) Um, And uh, I had been writing so much music where I wasn't doing that, and it was so yeah. It was just one of those last-second revelations of going, God damn it! I hate that this idea works so well because I really have to rewrite so much music now. And, uh, but it was for the better. It's good reason. You know, yeah. we, 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 you know, I, I, remind myself on days like that when it's four in the morning and it's the 15th day in a row like that. <laughs> I, I, I remember, you know, I could be doing taxes for a living yep. or I could be, um, <laughs> you know, I could be, I could be doing any number of things that are inferior in my opinion, or at least I am less suited for is probably the most accurate way to put it <laughs> than, um, than what I'm doing right now, so you know yep. I will I will suffer through this with a smile on my face, um, <laughs> and uh, because uh, it's a good problem to have. Indeed, but there definitely was a ton of that kind of thing on this one, though. My God, <laughs> <laughs> I was reminding myself of of that many times. <laughs> It was a hard score. It really, it really put me through a lot. You know, it really was not the easiest thing. Um, but uh, I, I really did, like I mentioned a minute ago. I, I think that I'm a better composer for it. Um, I, I would like to think so. Not just for the normal reasons that you know, anytime you write music, you're going to grow as a composer. But experiencing this true hybrid of film and games was something I'd never done before I just I mean it's not like FMV titles never existed before but we really tried to make it have all the elegance of a completely linear film score where you know scene starts and then ends and there's no there's no big challenge to that logistically Right, Uh, you're not having to contend with the player agency the way games do but you know this had to be passably a film basically.
0: It's a great score, that's for sure. So Well,
1: you know, if if I um I would never be so bold as to just agree with you on that. Uh, there's already <laughs> there's already plenty that I would be thrilled to have a chance to um to change and improve and, and update. Uh, but I, I'm not I'm not ashamed of the score. Um the question is, does the experience of playing the game Uh, You know, kind of overshadow whatever I'm not ashamed of or does it um, or does it uh, come through, you know, to the players and to the audience? And Journey is a very unusual game in that way. The score is so front and center in the experience. But most games and even more movies are really not like that. will say one final thank you i always am thrilled to be here i will yeah. i will see if i can't find a way to uh sneak onto your other show and listen to and learn about wine and um <laughs> you should i would love that uh certainly enjoyed <laughs> i certainly enjoyed the first one so good uh anyway thank you thank you again it's always truly uh so much fun to be here i agree thank you austin
0: Thanks for listening to episode 115 of Level with Emily Reese. You can learn more about Austin at austinwintry.com and see a playlist at patreon.com level. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam.
1: Oh, hi. And a special hi to Austin. Austin, if you need some new blood, I can be your new guo. You know what I'm saying? Like I can sing. I, I can play the guitar. So, you know, if you need a new, well, you know who to call my friend.
0: You can follow us on Twitter at Level with Emily and learn more about us at levelwithemily.com, made possible by Adam Selvage at Tiki Web Services and composer Brad Gentle. Level with Emily is a production of June Media.